Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 914 with Martha Hoover. And I really am a believer in short-coded mantras because I believe that the people who we hire and the people who choose to work for my company are smart people, and we treat them as if they are intelligent human beings. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, it, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. This episode is brought to you by Pop Menu. Trying to meet the demands of in-person hospitality can be demanding, which is why I recommend Pop Menu Answering. Pop Menu Answering turns every restaurant phone call into an opportunity. It uses artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions that are tying up your phone lines like, can I make a reservation or where are you located? And over 50% of restaurant guests are happy to have their questions answered by an automated system. Prevent lost customers and impress your guests with pop menu answering. And for a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off your first month, plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get your $100 off for your first month and to learn more about Pop Menu's full collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And I have to say, I haven't come across a restaurateur using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communications, tasks, tips, and more all in one place. And because you are restaurant on Unstoppable listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest founder and president of Cast A Potachu. Petit Chu Bistro, Napoli's Pizzeria, Public Greens, Apocalypse Burger, and Bar 114, Martha Hoover. Martha, are you feeling unstoppable today? 
totally unstoppable. Thank you for having me. I'm feeling unstoppable. I'm really excited for this conversation. Kristen Barnett had nothing but amazing things to say about you. And after just doing a little bit of research, looking at what you've built here in Indianapolis and what you're doing for your community uh, with all the different foundations and what you're working on, where we are today, this is like the headquarter for your foundation, correct? It is. We've been in this building three years. You're making a change. We're working at it. Yeah, you're making an impact, and I'm excited to share your story. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us, Martha? Well, in Potashu world, we use a lot of short codes and a lot of mantras. And I don't know if this is something that totally falls under the umbrella, but one of the things that has guided me, guided our company, is the economic adage that the perception of abundance creates disdain for resources. The perception for abundance creates disdain for resources. Yes. What is that? Get into dissect that for me. Well, I will tell you. Uh, think about it at the most simplest in terms of restaurant world. Um, the thing that costs restaurants the most is the creation of waste. And it's not just food waste or product waste, it's human waste as well. You know, it's just waste on every part of our very fragile ecosystems. Um, So when we first started employing the short code, the perception of abundance creates disdain for resources, we were talking in terms of our ingredients. You know, we put a lot of money, a lot of energy into how we source and resource our ingredients, our product. And we really needed staff to honor that and to not just because they could open up a walk-in that had beautiful organic produce did not mean that they could over portion the produce or whatever it was. But as we, as the company has evolved, as all of our, our, the mantras that we use internally um, have become more embedded in every way, we, we use short codes and mantras and we have since 1989. Um, and I really am a believer in short code and mantras because I believe that the people who we hire and the people who choose to work for my company are smart people. And we treat them as if they are intelligent human beings. So when we use complicated quotes like the perception of abundance creates disdain for resources, there's an assumption out there that people wouldn't understand what that means and would not be able to apply it to different areas of a restaurant ecosystem. But that's not true. Okay. We have smart people working in the restaurant business. This whole idea that it's people who can't find something else to do and somehow out of just a lack of opportunity fall into the restaurant world and then can't get out. I, I just refuse to accept that as truth. And it really, understanding that as my basic assumption that people choose restaurants, not just customers, but staff choose restaurants. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, like the, your inner guest, right? Like your, 100%. your employees could go to work anywhere. I think Danny Meyer puts it really well where he says your employees or your team is essentially volunteering to work for you because they could work anywhere right they're choosing to to do business with you you're paying them they're 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 doing business with you they're, like you need them right they're we choosing have, you yeah just like your guests are choosing to do business with you 
I know that that is a very, people right now are talking about it. Top of mind in the restaurant industry is treating staff as a, as a, we have always honestly looked at our staff as our internal customer. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So I, I really want to kind of drill down on this quote because I, I don't usually do this. It kind of reminds me of a history or not history of it, but like English class in high school where you, the teacher puts a sentence up like poetry and you really like break it down and what it means. So I'm going to read it one more time. The perception of abundance creates disdain for resources. So think of it this way. I think we need to define disdain. Okay. So what does disdain mean to you? Disrespect. Okay. Disrespect, misuse, um, the ability to to take resources that have value and treat them as if they have no value. Yeah. Yeah. So the perception of all these people that are out there that are so disposable creates this idea that people, there's no value to the relationships you currently have. Yes. I love that. A hundred percent. Beautiful. You know, it, it actually, this idea took hold as we did, as we decided as a company um, to, to look at our sustain, our, platform on sustainability and take it from a purely green slash environmental outlook, which is at the, at the simplest, right? How people define sustainability. Um, and we decided that sustainability needed to be embedded in every action that our company takes from food sourcing to retention of customers uh, how we attract staff and how we retain staff, how we com- how we communicate and relate to our general community, not just the community of customers that we have, but the community in which we exist and in which we live. Yeah. And so we just, you know, we we have determined that. In, first off, in terms, I'm sorry, I sound a little clunky. You're going to have to edit this. No, you're okay. doing great. Uh, in terms of environmental sustainability, um, we know that the great majority of restaurants, A, don't practice it, and B, where they practice it, it is mostly in a greenwashing way. And we also believe that the great majority of restaurants look at environmental sustainability as what to do with the waste when waste is created. And we decided, again, to upend that assumption by saying, how do we not create waste in the first place? Yes. With everything you do. So essentially, what you're doing is just being economical. The bottom line is it all impacts the bottom line. Yes. Yeah. And what I wrote down while you're talking, it applies to everything. Mm -hmm. And it's units of work. Why do more work than what's absolutely necessary? Why use more resources than what's absolutely necessary? It's unconscionable. Not just cost goods. Yeah. Labor. You know, not just... Um, you know, like, but like, not just those things too, but also like my energy of showing up. Am I giving more to this business than I need to? Right? With like, I think about like work life balance that that applies there too. Do you think that? Is you know, work life balance. As a woman in this industry, I started in 1989, and the question that has um, historically been asked of me, regardless of who's doing the asking has been, how do you achieve work-life balance? And it's a question that has I, I don't feel like I have ever answered 
as well as I should have. Because, and it finally occurred to me that I, and this was many years ago, 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, I'm a mother of three children. I've got dogs. I've got, uh, at one point I had horses, goats. I still have tons of chickens. I've got a husband who also has a you know, separate career for mine. I love mine. the husband made the list. <laughs> yeah, I, he did make the list, yeah. I always say I have three children and one husband. But um, but I guess my whole point in saying all that, I I have a, a full life and rest, on, on top of having restaurants. So people, of course, back when my children were young, would ask me about this work-life balance in a way that may, that was, I think, an attempt to make me feel like I wasn't doing my best mothering. Mm. Um, And here, you know, I remember reading, oh, I don't know, 30 years ago in Women's Wear Daily, having nothing to do with restaurants. I was reading 30 years ago an interview of the great French fashion designer, Sonia Raquel. And she said, someone asked her a very similar question. Here she was running this international fashion empire um, as a single mother, I believe, of two daughters. And they asked her about her work-life balance, something that women get asked way more about than men do. And her response was, wherever I am, I feel like I'm in the wrong place. Mm. When I'm home with my children, I'm thinking about my business. When I'm at work in my business, I'm thinking about my children. And after I read that quote, or some form of that quote, um, I started really believing that balance in the world is impossible to get. It is just like seeking perfection. Um, and I, I do, I am a bit of a perfectionist. So I feel like I, and I'm a way, way much a control freak. So I feel like I have some expertise in these two areas, but I determined that it was best for me to look at my life as a blend, Mm. um, you know, doing the best you can, but truthfully, I'm one of these people that loves work. Yeah. I was, that was, I was sitting on that question, work-life balance. Well, what if you get fulfilled what if your your cup is full when you're doing the thing that you love and you're there all the time right and like yeah so balance is relative a hundred percent like i didn't i and i'm not looking for this even scale Mm. where i get to go home and turn off my mind and not think about my business and only think about my children or my husband or the animals or my house or whatever my friends whatever it is um and also I gave myself the freedom to say out loud that I am so passionate about what I do and it does bring me remarkable fulfillment that when I'm not doing it, you know, some people look at work the way I look at non my non-work life. Sometimes my non-work life, the, the forced relaxation and all that for me is kind of like if someone told me I had to go dig a ditch in 95 degree <laughs> weather in Indiana when it's also raining. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I'm sorry. I really find tremendous personal purpose in what I do. Yeah. And so you're making me think of something I used to say often. I, don't, I used to say I don't believe in work-life balance. I believe in finding your, your life's work. 
Thank you. Yeah. Uh, can I steal that? Absolutely. Thank you. I, and, and just just quote me. Spread the word about restaurant stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but it's, it's true because like, like if you're doing what you love, if you're doing what you were put on this planet to do, if you, if you found your your uh, definite purpose, if you've self actualized, and you and you're being seen for what it was, for it, what it is that you're meant to do, you, your your cup doesn't get emptied that fast. It, your cup's almost always full. You're almost overflowing, right? Uh, but it's hard for like if you find that, then don't be guilty about loving it. You know, you also have to make time for people in your life. To, you, you can't neglect certain things, but a hundred percent and time for yourself, you know, especially I think COVID and yeah. what happened in the ensuing years uh, has shown us that we do need to step back and we do need mental health breaks yeah. and all. And I agree with all that, but I, I do not look at work as, as a function that I should take a, re- a break from. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, just the one thing that keeps on echoing in my head is that balance is relative. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not what what's balanced for you isn't balanced for me. And I think it's important to recognize that too. Yeah. Right? I love this. A uh, great way to get this thing started, Martha. I'm really enjoying the conversation. So um, where does it make sense to start sharing your story? Cause you, you opened your first restaurant in 1989. Is that correct? Yeah. I opened in 1989. The story is that I opened my first restaurant in 1989 after a uh, short but impactful career as a sex crimes prosecutor. I was a lawyer in a prior life. So it was uh, restaurants were kind of my second act professionally. I opened my first restaurant having never worked in a restaurant and not knowing I was pregnant with my third child. You op- wait, you, work, you opened your, your first or your second, did you say? First restaurant. Okay, and all, did I say second? I, I meant maybe first. You did. I opened my first restaurant <laughs> having never worked in a restaurant. I opened my first restaurant not knowing I was pregnant with my third child. Oh, my goodness. So, you know, it, it, I've said in the past a million times it was a remarkable recipe for disaster, except it wasn't. It was actually what I think... It's what still makes Potashu so relevant 33 years post-opening. What exactly is that? I think it what was, it? I think the biggest uh, plus I had going for me was that I had never worked in the restaurant world. So I did not know, I did not bring the I did not use the template. Ignorant is bliss. Ignorance is bliss. Ignorance right? is... If you had known what, what it was going to be, would you have done it? I probably would have done it okay. because I was that like into it. But I think I would have done it in an incredibly derivative... Mm, I think I understand what you're saying now. So you... I would have... I you would have taken all the bad habits and you would have... And instead you, you did it with a clean slate and you... you, and you That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I didn't know what all the ills of the industry that's really a big important thing to point out because i think it's an issue in our industry what we do is we just rinse and repeat rinse and repeat people who work in this industry they go to work for someone who's successful they learn about how they did it and then they just do the same thing that that person did and that person before like they just steal it from the generation before and and it hasn't changed since 1905 you know and and the industry is broken There's, there's things there's better ways to do business today but we keep on operating on a broken business model well and also i at at least it, my experience has been that it is much easier to create healthy work cultures from the get-go than it is to come in and correct 
them, mm. correct ones that are not healthy. And you see that now. Um, restaurant groups, restu- in, even in small independents, trying to adapt to whatever the new normal is. Let's just call it the new normal because everyone kind of gets that, you know, with employee rights and trying to create healthy cultures, supportive cultures, uh, internal cultures. You know, it's almost impossible to stop and correct. Yeah. So I would imagine somebody with a sex crimes background, you had a lot in the back of your mind of just, if you're hiring people, um, human rights. Well, you know, it's interesting. I worked for a a prosecutor who gave the sex crimes team remarkable freedom to create. This was back in the day before every prosecutor's office had a sex crimes unit. In fact, we were possibly one of the first two or three sex crimes units formed in the country. So it was a really pivotal time legally. And truthfully, none of the real prosecutors, quote unquote, the the guys doing homicides and that kind of stuff, wanted to deal with sex crimes. Sex crimes involved women as victims and children as victims. And it was seen as kind of, you know, can't, can't, don't want to get involved with that. So what happened was, uh, I'm sure an unintended consequence was that it was a group of young women who were thrown into this sphere where we we created all the rules. And what that taught me was, yes, it gave me huge awareness of, um, you know, oh, let me see, gave me huge awareness of a patriarchal society that we weren't even using that language back then. It also gave me a huge awareness of my own power. And um, to create something, to create systems and procedures and understand that there is a purpose associated with the system and procedure other than just efficiency, um, you know, creating efficiency for efficiency's sake is kind of silly. But at at any rate, uh, that created a mindset for me. And the mindset when I opened up my first restaurant was, yeah, I'm taking all of this into account. Let me regurgitate to make sure I fully understand. What, yeah, what, that what was a lesson. lot of words. It probably no, I think didn't I make got sense. It. I think I got it. And I did just drive 30 hours across the country. So I'm a little foggy this morning, but I think I'm pretty sure I'm picking up what you're putting down. Being Having this uh, autonomy in your legal career, uh, and having free range of this vertical within your your legal career gave you that ability to build something from scratch and it empowered you to show you that you could do it. I think the other big lesson I got there too was that you you started that with a mission, a purpose. There was something that was driving you to create this and you built systems and process and culture around that purpose. Yes. And I think that was the other big thing that I got from that. And And how does that translate to the restaurant industry? Well, I can tell you it, how it translates specifically to my company. Um, I, 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 our company is a value-aligned, purpose-driven company that happens t- to serve food. Value-aligned, purpose-driven Driven company, company that so- happens to serve food. And I think that's, that is a critical departure from the narrative, especially that has been out there, um, you know, with the, all these best of lists and the best chefs and the new restaurants and 
James Beer Awards and all that kind of stuff. Um, the I believe that I recognized from an early date, almost from the get-go, that the plate was extremely important, but it wasn't the only thing that was important. Okay, so you think that recognizing this early on is what got you that 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 draw from these these bodies these the, yeah okay got it yeah yeah I think that I think that we were I think that distinguished Padashu from day one and day one was in 1989 I mean go back I don't know how old you were in 1989 I was you were four. You were four. <laughs> Food yeah. wasn't even invented then. No. I mean, it was, but we got, it you know was what reinvented to garbage. And then we had to go back That's to right. what was, yeah, absolutely. That's right. So, um, and, the, we... and Indianapolis, by the way, I mean, I'm, I'm located in Indianapolis. Indianapolis was probably one of the most fertile testing grounds in the United States. I believe it was Indianapolis and Columbus, Ohio, with every chain concept. We, and we had no real history of ethnic restaurants and communities that were, we, we don't have in Indianapolis, for instance, a Chinatown or yeah, what, I, you know, so. I, I'm hesitant to go down this road, but I, I've heard a lot and I was, I've become made aware recently of a lot of these big corporations, the McDonald's, the Wendy's, the KFCs of the world were targeting certain uh, demographics, certain types of communities, um, mostly um, African American communities. Have you heard that? Am I off? I have heard this? it, but I don't. I can't I wasn't sure speak if you knew to much it about because that. I. Well, I even think in today's marketing, there is a tremendous amount of demographic data mining. Don't you? Yeah, but I'm curious. I mean, what was the demographic of Indianapolis at that time? Uh, middle of the road white Americans. Okay, I wasn't. I wasn't sure of. It that was. was I mean, I do, I I I don't think that I can politicize it any more than that. To be honest, I think they were these large organizations, not the ones that you name, but the yeah, all, the Olive the Gardens, the yeah. Applebees of the world, were populating. I think also, don't forget, in the uh, early nineties, that. That was also a time of remarkable chain restaurant growth. Shopping centers were the cultural centers of cities like Indianapolis, right? Well, I mean, I think what was happening is that we started to realize the economy of scale, and we started realizing it's about how much can I do for how little, and it's about efficiencies. But Well, that that is capitalism in a nutshell, especially late-stage capitalism, which I don't think you can be in the restaurant world and not at some point realize that, or at least this is how I've looked at it, we create value for our customers and we create value for our team members mm-hmm. and value for our community. The The defining, the distinction is that most people in the restaurant world define value, and most consumers also. So the flip side of, you know, the, the consumers, the customers they define value differently than I define value. They define value based on, I believe, a late capitalism adage of the... What do you mean by late capitalism adage? Well, let me let me just 
this is what I think most people, most people define value in the restaurant world as getting the most amount of food for the least amount of money. And it, with that equation, the most for the least. It thinks that or the restaurant owner thinks that? I think everyone thinks that. I think everyone thinks that. What's the reality? The reality is when you try to deliver the most amount for the least, the most amount of food for the least amount of money, that automatically means that you have no respect for the food and no respect for the people along the production line that create the food. You cannot have it both ways. You can't have the most for the least without having a tremendous amount of collateral damage. And that collateral damage, truthfully... The food system. It's the food system. (laughs) for sure. The food system. And, you know, at the end of the day... Yeah, there's... (laughs) That's a bit distracting. Uh, you may have heard the siren just two seconds ago. There's a fire truck in the um, background. As if watching the video. as they're walking, <laughs> I, I think they're coming for a coffee break. Oh, okay. They just, they just throw the no, sirens I, on as, as a way to get out of our way. We need coffee. That's fine. They stop, they stop traffic so they can yeah. get their coffee. We happen to love our fire department, and we have just two blocks west of here. Um, we and We're at a... I'm sorry to intrude on no, your question. I, I have notes. I, t- I take great notes. We can get right back on it, too. Uh, we This is called Marcy Village. Marcy Village is an affordable housing complex that has been here since the uh, six, early 60s. And we have a, we opened up a coffee shop at Marcy Village to because the owner of Marcy Village, when we were negotiating the lease for the Parachute Foundation, rental of his space he was like my people the people who live here deserve the dignity of a real coffee shop and uh so we that was part of the negotiation that we would open up a coffee shop but also two blocks west of us is the uh black firemen's association firefighters not fire black firefighters association so they do a lot of practice and, and oh, okay. that's probably what they're doing here. interesting yeah so well, where we left off is this idea of value is about how much for how fast that that's that but how some, fast how much how cheap yeah exactly but some things are meant to be slow some things are meant to to be uh exp- i think i hate to use the word expensive but of value you know valuable like the food you're putting into your body yeah. You know, like some things yeah. it's worth to put a little bit of money into. And um, I think, yeah, I mean, I don't and, think we have to drill down. So I'm like, if you, in a system that dehumanizes and devalues human labor, the labor of farmers, the labor of cooks, the labor of, I mean, we, we did at the beginning of COVID when, when we came back yeah, and we automatically raised our prices Um and we did it for very obvious reasons, Cost right? of goods. Cost of goods. It, Labor. You know, you got to attract people to come work for you. Like, that's right. Yeah. I have never shied away from charging what I need to charge. Yes. And that's a huge issue in our industry. I feel like it we're is. getting really ahead of ourselves right I'm now. I'm sorry. But I'm loving the conversation, though. It's really important. And like, and this well, is the, this, I do think that, you know, we focus so much on, right now on internal culture and employee, yeah. you know, how employees are, which we should have always focused on. But we also should focus on this 
false price fixing. I can, it, here's, you've been traveling cross country. There is, are almost universal national menu pricing. A cup of coffee is, a, 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 let's say a cappuccino is four fifty in just about every city you go to. Yeah. I, it I just makes sense. It, it, everything on your menu should be reverse engineered to figure out exactly what it cost you with everything that went into it, not just the, the food itself, but the packaging, the labor, all those things need to be factored factored into what the end value is, what the end cost is. And there should be a, a fixed percentage that is going to be your profit, your owner's pay, your like all that stuff needs to be worked into that. You need to take your profit. It won't be given to you. You need to take it. Well, you know what? Let's face it. Uh, restaurants need to be profitable. Yeah, and like any other business. Like any other. They are. No one questions, let's say, Apple for charging $1,500 for a phone and making obscene profits. In fact, people applaud them for their ability to make obscene profits. No one cares that Tim Cook, a brilliant business leader, way smarter than me, I get it, way more successful, I don't even know what the guy makes, but no, I guarantee people out there are like, yeah, he deserves to make a hundred million a year. Why then do people expect restaurateurs, people who own restaurants to eke a living out of their restaurants? Why then? What's the answer? I, I think it goes back to this, the muscle memory of consumers thinking that food has to be cheap. And when they say food has to be cheap, it automatically means that the people involved in the food chain, farmers on up, do not get paid their value. Yeah. Basically, ever since World War II, the food system has been warped. But anybody who's alive today, really, um, some people were alive before that, obviously, still to to this point. But the majority of people don't remember what the food system was, what yeah. it was like to go to the market where the food was grown locally. Our perception of food has been warped and it's, it's not the consumer's fault. It's all they know that we've been, we've been conditioned yeah. to think that a burger costs $3. That's right. We've been conditioned to think so that what, food is. So what happens when that burger costs $3? It, it means that you are not taking care of the animals properly. Mm-hmm. You're not taking care of the workers involved. Uh, you are disrespecting not only the resourcing that goes into that meal, but every aspect of it. Um, and I just find that to be like remarkably unconscionable. Yeah. In, uh, you know, the mission statement, I like to echo it. We're, we're kind of getting into the kind of type of conversation I like to wrap up with, but I'm happy. Oh, to I'm get, sorry. No, like it's just, it, I'm happy that it's coming early, you know, but the mission well, statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. And this is the transform part. That's what we're talking about right now. What's broken with the industry and what needs to change. And I think to kind of, you know, where this, where is this all heading? Where's this conversation heading? We need to educate the consumer as to what it costs to do food right. Well, on our, I don't know if you've noticed, but on every one of our menus, we have our company's mission statement and our mission on our menus, it states our menu pricing reflects our mission to improve the prosperity and security of our business, 
our team members, and our community. Mm. It takes money to make a change. You need resources. That's right. But do you know what else? You also have to talk about profits themselves. Uh, I believe that not all profits are bad, but I and profits are necessary in any and all businesses. My biggest concern as a restaurateur is this idea from every front that the restaurant owner that you know, when I first started in the restaurant industry in 1989, it was common for restaurants to have profit levels of north of 20%. Yeah. Do you know what they are today? The Less, ab- like probably 5 or 8%, I think. Is a- the, the average, according to National Restaurant Association, the average restaurant is at a 5% yeah. profit. Now, now, what happens when you're at 5%? You, you're you, starved you're, in all aspects. You're start. You are working. Yeah. Uh, you're most often your fingers to the bone. Number one. Number two. You have no ability to handle the vulnerabilities that no security. Uh, no security, and you cannot address your vulnerabilities. Um, and COVID should have shown everybody that vulnerabilities can crop out of nowhere. And bring an entire industry to its knees. Yeah. And one of the reasons is because it does not, because of the system that we're talking about. And I know it seems very high level, but in a very um, practical day-to-day matter manner, I made the decision, mainly because I didn't know I wasn't supposed to, to chart, to pay my people well from day one and to charge what i needed to charge in order to do that and also we just came full circle uh, thank you i i I saw you going like wrap this up no 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 this is great we just came full circle but that's where we kind of left off is that you didn't have you didn't have any of this these bad habits this this perspective of what the the industry was you came in with a clear a Mm. clean slate and you knew enough about business to know that you need to to make money right yeah. yeah. I mean, all of, you know, for for whatever anyone in the restaurant industry thinks they're doing, they are in a for-profit business, yeah. you first did, and foremost. Yeah. You, you did say something that I, I kind of want to push more on. You said that, that, I think, quote unquote, that's capitalism in a nutshell, when it's about providing the most for the least amount or the fastest or whatever. I think that that's changing right now. I think I do think capitalism gets a bad rap. I Me think, too. I think capitalism goes hand in hand with consciousness. And I think you've mentioned a few times about consciousness. And that's why we have mission statements. That's why we have values. And I think it's important. But there's there's a change that's happening right now. People are starting to realize that people don't just buy with their, their head. They buy with their heart. And... I think that there's a real positive change. And I get worried when people say the end of capitalism because capitalism provides a lot of good things too. I, th- I think it's just for the past 60 years or so, it's been void of, of consciousness. Yeah, I, I mean, this could go into a really dark space of talking about Wall Street. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, one of the things that I like to remind people is so many restaurants have huge investment, you know, billionaire dudes and millionaire culture equity venture behind them. And that's not my story. I mean, I, I go to a bank and borrow money, sign a note and pay it back. I, in order to take on that remarkable amount of debt so that I can 
build my units and hire people, provide not just jobs, but opportunities. That sounds like a, you know, a a line, but it's absolutely true. Um, You know, in order to do that, you have to honor, you have to know the difference in most restaurateurs, I believe, understand this so clearly now, even if they didn't before the events of 2020, there is a huge difference between cash flow and profits. Mm. What is the biggest difference between cash flow and profit? Cash flow is, I mean, yes, you absolutely have to have, I mean, are you talking from an economic uh, definition or just yeah like what pack. is what is it that people don't understand between the, ca- the difference between cash flow and profit you have to be profitable yeah how do you become profitable what's the, the thing that you have to do to be profitable the first thing is you have to value yourself and your product and properly charge for it yeah um, I'm a huge proponent or advocate advocator for profit first which is a money management system have you heard of it no I haven't it's tell su- me it's, about it's it it's literally I'm writing it down the name of the book Michael McCallowitz is the author the name of the book is called profit first and he's like, one day he just, he's like, why do we traditionally you profits what's left over, you know, like you, you charge something, you cover your cost of goods, you cover your labor, you cover yeah. taxes, you cover all the things that you are on the hook for and whatever is left over is your profit. He says, why do we do this? We need to take our profit first. And I would say you also need to take your owner's pay first because those, those are two different things. What you what you're paying yourself and what your t- profit is different from owner's pay. Profit is money that you put away and you don't even touch unless that's buying an asset or paying off debt. That's profit. Owner's pay is what you need to cover your liabilities, your day to day liabilities, so you, Martha Hoover, can do can can get through life securely, right? And then then comes taxes. Because that's not your money. Then comes operational expenses. And when you put operational expenses at the end, cash flow determines growth. You don't overextend. Exactly. But you're covering your liabilities, your needs, and you're putting secu- you're putting profit away so you can grow. And it- well, and to to I'm sorry, I'm a big interrupter. No, this is a conversation. It, thank you. <laughs> and we're playing tennis right now. That. But truthfully. I think one of the issues is over the last, I don't know how many years, um, I do think profits have been deemed to all be evil. It's not. I think but that's, that's why I push back on this idea of capitalism, because people think that money is evil. People, Money is just a way to measure relationships. It's an agreement, measure of value, and business is just relationships. Look, if I weren't profitable, I wouldn't be able to hire more people. I wouldn't be able to pay thriving wages. I wouldn't be able to have a foundation that is doing remarkable work in our community. Wouldn't be able to open up additional locations to, you know, all that. So I think this idea that all profits are evil just is a false narrative that it's too simple. You know how everything is. If it's that simple to state, it's usually way more complex underneath the surface. Yeah, money talks. Money talks and where you put your money. The the thing is, it's the consumer that says this, but it's also the consumer that has all the power. If you think money is evil, then use your money for good. A hundred percent. You know, you have that choice. But also, I think that this is where I think this is another thing that distinguished my company early on. I knew that my 
that my average pricing was higher than what this market, what my local market was used to. But I communicated early on with my customers and my staff what they could expect from me and that what their expectation was for quality of food, quality of service, quality of of ambience, um, how we took care of our staff, how we took care of our community, how we took care of our own spaces, that they could expect all of that at a benchmark level. And I really said for the first 20 years, this isn't all going in my pockets. But if some of it goes in my pockets, I'm the one who's also taken on all the risk. Yeah. That is okay. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I've never been the greediest person in the restaurant world. Uh, and I think that this is an incredibly complex system that we're talking about. It's more, it's capitalism, it's consumer behavior, it's consumer expectations that's been supported by this push by our agricultural policy to get, again, the most for the least amount of money. Now, I, I happen to sit at a vantage point. I live in Indianapolis, Indiana. Indiana is a beautiful agricultural state. Just to, to kind of talk, take this into another tangent, not necessarily dealing with restaurants specifically, I'm in an agricultural state. 90% of the farms in Indiana grow food not for human consumption. Yeah, it's it's scary. It's fucked up. Yeah. That is fucked up. 10% of the farms in in Indiana, a historically agricultural state, grow food for human consumption. Now, what does that tell you? All those cornfields that you drive by that look so beautiful, those are all, I guarantee, every cornfield you have driven by are for biofuel, oils, and animal feed. Yeah. I got to be honest. I don't think they look beautiful. They don't. They look, <laughs> like, I don't. they're monoculture. They're not regenerative. When you, know, when you know about how bad that is for the economy and you just drive, I just literally, Martha, literally three hours ago parked our U-Haul, drove 30 miles across country, Oregon to Indiana. How many miles did you drive? 3,000? Uh, just, just shy of like 3,000 miles. Whoa. That's 30, 30 hours. The amount of mono crops, mono monoculture, agriculture, um, is it's sickening when you know what that's doing to the environment, to the Great Plains. The, the Great Plains had as much biodiversity as like a rainforest, and we just stripped all that to grow corn but everything's connected and that trickles you know and and it, it affects the the um gulf of mexico like all this stuff it all it's all connected what we did to the buffalo and like all this like what the, the role of all that was connected you know and you look at this and you just go you think to yourself what have we done yeah how do we come back from that I don't have a solution. I wish I did. Well, I would get a Nobel farming, Prize, right? But I think is it one solution? Regenerative farming. Uh, I think regener. I think there are a lot of solutions. Yeah. I don't think there's a quick pill here. I do. The I, consumer has to know about this stuff because they, the money, the consumer drives everything. 
you know, and if they know they choose where to put their money, the market will react to the consumer because that's all we friggin' do is react to the consumer, which is another big issue. We're constantly knee jerk reacting to what the consumer, what are the other consumer trends? What are the consumer trends? Why are we reacting to the market? The market needs yeah, to react to the But industry. I will say, Potashu, even in 1989, um, understood that. Again, businesses have to distinguish themselves. I'm in a huge category. Restaurants. Yeah. You know how many restaurants there are in the United States? What Let, is that number? Do you know it? Oh, it's something like, I don't know, 700,000. I mean, it's an insane yeah. number. Insane number. Um, and, you know, we can talk about restaurant bubble, restaurant glut, the reason why there are so many restaurants, which also contributes to the low profitability of restaurants, right? Mm -hmm. And it goes to the perception of abundance creates disdain for resources. I mean, that saying, talk about full circle, that saying applies to a lot in life, I believe. But what was was my point? Tell me what you were talking about. Uh, We're talking about the broken food system. I was ranting how we, we react to the consumer. We're guilty of just constantly reacting to the consumer, giving the consumer what the consumer wants. Oh, I know what I was saying. So even at the very beginning of Potashu, one of the things that I didn't know was distinguishing us but ended up to be something that was really put us on a path of the ability to be successful was the fact that I was giving customers what they did not know they wanted. What did Henry Ford say? Did he say that? No, he said if if you if you if you give the consumer what or the whatever the people what they wanted, well, they, he they would ask been, for faster horses. Yeah, I, that, I was just going to say <laughs> yeah. we never would have had the electric car, <laughs> yeah, exactly. right? Exactly. So um, I really feel that the the social contract I enter into every day is telling my consumer, my customers, this is what you can expect from me. You you have to pay for it because. In return, this is what my staff can expect from me. In return, this is what my community can expect from me. Um, and I, I think that in Indiana, we have had this remarkable success because people do identify my, the values of my company with their own personal values. Yeah. I'm loving this conversation. I think now is a great time to take our first break to thank our sponsors. And we'll be right back to really start. I want to start focusing on your story and like how you actually started to do it. I want, we, this has been a really great conversation, but we're going to really drill down now. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-Day Pilot Program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals. Recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting. 
with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. Restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. We are back, and we've had a lot of fun talking about the industry as a big picture, and that was great, but I want to spend some time now talking about who is Martha Hoover, and how did you get to where you are today? How many total restaurants do you have as of today? 14, and we have three new locations of Cafe Parachu, my original restaurant, opening by um, first end of first quarter in 23. So you have 14. Plus one, three coming Plus online. three coming in a total of uh, unique brands. You have one, two, three, four, five, six unique brands? Sure. Is that I never even count like that. Okay. So thank you. Let me see. We have Cafe Parachu, we have Napolese, we have Petit Chou, Apocalypse Burger, Bar One Fourteen, Public Greens, and then I consider the Parachu Foundation as to be part of our very much part of our organization. Yes. Okay. Beautiful. But you didn't start there, right? No. Yeah, like it's taken thirty three years to get to this point. So. When you opened back in 1989, you you said you opened with a mission, right? What was echo that mission one more time? Well, the mission had the mission evolved. My, but can I can I go at this a little different direction? Go for it. I think I have a unique perspective than most people in business. Remember, I had no business background. I'd never worked in a restaurant, and I did not know that I was expecting my third child. Yeah. So perhaps this is my my singular perspective. I feel like I basically gave birth to twins a couple of months apart. Um, one One of the babies was my first restaurant. The other was my third child. And the reason why I mention this is it that concurrence of events allowed me, especially as I stepped back, as I stepped back over time, to look at my business in a very similar way that I was looking at my son growing up. So I had two babies. Mm -hmm. I had two toddlers. I had, I'm going to go through his lifespan, two uh, terrible, you know, the terrible twos (laughs) happened. I had these toddlers. I had this period of time of real growth when he started school, which allowed me, I had two other children, but they were already in school, gave me a different ability to focus on my business, right? I then, he started driving. That's kind of when my company really went fast. Yeah. Um, And he's a young adult. And I feel like, that my company is in young adulthood. And with each of those life stages, going from being a baby to walking to running to driving to being an adult, with each of those stages, the values of the company remained the same, 
but the mission of the company evolved. Mm. The mission today was not the mission in day one. The vision today was not the vision in at day one. I'm happy you, you bring this to the conversation because we hear a lot about the importance of vision and mission and values. Mm. But I think sometimes people don't realize that as we evolve, as the world evolves, as we feed our brains information and knowledge, we get perspective. Things change over time. Yeah. Your, your purpose can change. Your mission can change. But you're right. Values tend to say fixated. Because, it's the values to yeah. me that matter. Mission, I, I um, Brad Stevens, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but you should be. Great uh, NBA basketball coach okay. of the Celtics. But prior to his going to the Celtics, he was a basketball coach at a small college here in Indianapolis called Butler University. Okay. And before he did that, he was actually an analyst. And he's very, very well known for his application of math and data to basketball. Mm. But he also was a remarkable friend and customer of my cafes when he and his family lived here and when he was coaching Butler. And one thing he reminded, Butler, by the way, is a very, very values-based university. They call it the Butler way. And it's pretty remarkable what they have done. Not here to talk about Butler. I didn't go there. But at any rate, it's part of our community. So, you know, we're, we are enmeshed. But one thing that I will never forget Coach Stevens telling me is that it's the values that matter way more than the mission statement. And part his example, Enron, I'm sure you've heard of Enron, the failed behemoth Wall Street favorite that ripped off thousands of people while it gilded the pockets of the owners and people on Wall Street. Um, a huge failure financially. Uh, so, and Lilly, Eli Lilly, a company in our state, a pharmaceutical company that has contributed greatly to the health and prosperity of people around the world, particularly with their diabetes drugs. Um, they have basically the same mission statement. Mission statements are not as critical to me as the underlying values of any organization. So what are our underlying values? I really believe that restaurants, particularly my restaurants, are sacred spaces. And we state that openly. These are sacred spaces. And what does that mean? It means that there has to be inherently a lack of chaos and remarkable respect for all who enter our doors. Yeah. So what are your core values? Just real quick run run through them. Have they, have they been the same since you've had them? Or yeah, have they evolved? They, they really what are those have. core values? The sacredness of our spaces, the That's respect one. that we have of our resourcing, Two. and resourcing being not just ingredients, but our financial resourcing, uh, the respect that we have for the staff who make all of our lives possible, the respect that we have for our consumer, our end user, our customer, and also our respect for the community that has supported us. Yeah. So what the, the values do, and correct me if you have a or if you have a different perspective of what values are. The way I see values, they're the filter through which you make all of your decisions. Yes. So like your your mission is like this is who we are, this is why we exist, this is what we do, this is our core focus, but every decision we make goes through the core values 
filter, right? Like, is this who we are? Does this align with our values? And that's, and you get to put that through the filter to get to the mission of what we're doing. But, yeah. but why is that more important to have that filter than to actually have your, your core focus? Look, all businesses have values, whether or not they are values that I agree with. They all have values. The convenience store, the BP gas station, they have values. Those values are not my values. Those values are cheap, convenient, low paying jobs, make the most money for BP. That's a different value, but they have values. Our values are different. We're, we're, um, and it's, I don't care what anyone says. All businesses are value driven and their decisions do reflect the core values. Our core values just happen to not be in alignment with BP's core values. So when you started back in 18, sorry, 1989. Yeah, it feels like 1889. (laughs) I'm dyslexic, so I get numbers backwards sometimes. Uh, 1989. you started, you had these values. You, you yeah. knew from day one, you were a purpose-driven organization. What was it that you were trying to do when you opened? Well, truthfully, here's where the change happens. You know, the baby, right? Yeah. You had this baby, the cafe. Um, and I love that analogy, by the way. And I was, I, it was a really great way to get, I want to pull back layers and as we go, keep going. Okay. The So when I started, my focus almost 100% primarily was on opening a neighborhood restaurant, a restaurant that happened to be located in a neighborhood that I happened to live in. And I never felt like I was a very unique person. So I figured if I wanted to eat food that was prepared a certain way, remember this is 32 years ago, really at the height of chain, at the height of... You know, the great Krogerization mm-hmm. or whatever you call it of groceries yeah. and all that stuff. Um, I was returning food in my restaurant, a homemade, something that wasn't being done. We didn't buy things off of the back of a large food distributor truck and throw them in the freezer and take them out and fry them and serve them. We actually were, I was actually working with farmers in 1989 um, that was unheard of and I was in a neighborhood and I was doing breakfast and lunch and I was a woman and I had to shut down my breakfast line if my baby needed to be nursed or if I needed to run to the bank all that kind of stuff my focus in 1989 was purely on opening a restaurant in my neighborhood that served the kind of food that I served my family and friends in my home. So you walked away from a very secure uh, career. You're a lawyer. Yeah. uh, Secure, but not, did not have the, did not fuel me, did not feed my soul. Uh, It was, I went to law school as a very default education. Law school for me was a default education. I think law school for a lot of people is a default education. What was missing? Uh, In the law, the ability ability to be creative and and impactful. Okay. So you don't think you're impactful lobbying or not lobbying, but defending uh, victims of of sex crime or was it uh, sex? Even that sex crimes. Yeah. yeah. Even that was mired Mm. in a bureaucracy. There was also tremendous, as you can imagine, uh, pushback from the general culture. People didn't take it seriously. It was very frustrating. Mm. And 
although I could have done it for the rest of my life, it was also extremely emotionally mm, difficult. I bet. I bet. Okay. Uh, so when you first opened your restaurant, your first restaurant, which yeah. was, uh, 1989. Cafe, right? Yeah. Cafe Parachute. Yep. Um, what was your role in that restaurant? Like, what did you do? What did your life look like then? Like what? Well, it, my role was as the owner slash manager slash bathroom cleaner slash dishwasher because with restaurant, and I think this happens a lot with restaurant one or business number one, especially small business mom and pop mindset. I think I didn't have, uh, I had the perspective of a founder in a, the most narrow way. Yeah. I but, felt like I had to do everything myself, mm. but by the time I had restaurant number three, I understood, and this was, you know, in the 90s. So again, before we really had the language to address this, I realized that I needed to get out of founder mode. I needed to stop thinking it was okay to wear a a hat that just pivoted according to what needed to be done that day. I needed to actually, and this is the part that has been most rewarding for me, that I needed to attract talent and build a team that understood the vision and mission and values of the company and could help me realize it. Yes. I'm at, this is like where I'm at right now in my business. So this is like really resonating with me. I'm trying to build my own team, but I, I love, I mean, I just love that you, you, you really broke it down, but I kind of want to go back a little bit to when you were first opening. I mean, you had a successful career in law. You're making money as a lawyer. I'm assuming. Yeah, I mean, I was doing okay. So did you have money put away? Did you have a runway? What did you, did you have that? Operating no, capital? this is so 1989. I I'm so frustrated with the restaurant scene in Indianapolis. I uh, I have always been just remarkably, remarkably attracted and interested in food, food culture. I this is more common today. I I assume because the world is so much smaller today. But when I was a senior in high school, so I was seventeen. I graduated when I was seventeen from high school. And a week after I graduated from high school, I took myself to to Paris. Wow. And I went there because I wanted to see the food. Mm. Yeah, I went to the museums. I loved the architecture. Um, But what I really loved was going to the food markets, Mm -hmm. eating in the cafes. I loved the idea of cafe life. So you've always been passionate about food. Always have been remarkably passionate about food. And interestingly, my father, who was an MD, PhD, used to tell me as from when I was a little girl on that I could accomplish anything in the world with the exception of being in the food business because that was a true man's world. I think that's changing. I think you're evidence of that. A hundred percent. But in 19, I grew up in the fifties and sixties. So he saw, he was like, you could, you could become a doctor. You can become a scientist. You can become this, you can become this. But don't ever think you can be a chef. Not going to happen. Yeah. And um, I was just so attracted to food and the food world, food history, food culture. Yeah. That it really. So I came back to Indianapolis, went to uh, went to college in Bloomington, went through this law school, default education, fell into this great time period with the prosecutors establishing sex crimes unit. Did not really 
feed me emotionally the way I needed it to. And at the back of my mind was always, I think I'm not unique. And if I want to open up a restaurant with that serves food in a certain environment, a certain quality of food, I think there'll be other people in my neighborhood that are like-minded. But your question was, how did I do that? Yeah. If I had saved money? No, I didn't save money because I was young and dumb and I didn't make that much. I mean, I really did not make that much. Prosecutors still to this day yeah, I think that's not probably valued. a false. You hear a lawyer and you're like, oh, you must have been rich. Exactly. Right? Yeah. I mean, I was a public, pilot, like I was a public really, servant, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. But in 1989, in order for me to get a business loan, I had to have my husband co-sign wow. at a bank. And I remember as if it were yesterday sitting across my husband, my husband, who's always been very supportive of me and wherever my ambitions were taking me, um, that sitting across the bank officer's desk, borrowing my first loan so I could open up my first restaurant and the banker looking at my husband, not me and saying, are you sure you want to do this? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. Just like completely looking past you. Yeah, I made that but that's like, you know, it, I think it's really hard sitting in 2022 heading into 2023 to look back that far and to realize just how it's it fucked up today. It was really yeah. fucked up back then. I'm happy then. you say that cuz I feel like we we tend to focus on what is fucked up and we don't focus on how far we've come. And I don't want to say that we, we've made it and that there's nothing else we can do to make this world a better place. We know that's not true. But I do think it's important to stop and reflect and think about how much progress has happened in the past 30 years. We're, we're moving forward. And, and are we where we need to be? No. Is the world 10 times better than what it was just a short time ago? Is the world exponentially improving? I think it is. I think culture is exponentially improving. I'm a, I am in your camp of being an eternal optimist yeah. about humanity. Yeah. I think it's it just, can we just lighten the mood a little bit sometimes and look at like what we have achieved? You know what I mean? Like, and not to say that we can't do better. We can absolutely do better. But I think, you know, we're moving in the right direction. I'm, I'm super hopeful for the future. So you, you didn't have a ton of money put away um you kind of just opened you didn't have like a runway like you weren't saying to yourself i need at least a year of operating capital in case this no nor was i saying i'm going to have multiple restaurants nor was i saying i am going to you know be part of a farm to table movement i mean those things didn't even exist so we identified some of the the key things that you did well early on you had a mission you had core values you had vision from day one you had purpose You, you know what i didn't do what's that I didn't codify those. So by codify, set in stone, fix. They were fixed in my brain. I did not have them. I think a real game changer for my company was when I realized that it was not enough for me to know what the mission, the values, the vision for the business were, that I needed everyone who was working with me, whether it was vendor or staff, and then ultimately customers too, to understand those. And when did you figure that out, that I, you had to do that? I figured that out, uh, had a very specific moment that was a huge light bulb moment for me. I was invited to somebody's house for a dinner party, and I was seated next to the host, and the host turned to me and said, and I will never forget this, where do you find your people? 
as if we just looked under a rock and we found people. Yeah. You, and you don't find people. People find you. I, I think that <laughs> I think there's yeah. some truth to that. Yeah. Um, I do think that what was missing in that question was the recognition of how much intention went into everything we were working on, I was working on. Mm. And I answered a very polite answer. And I can't remember the answer. It was stupid and polite. But that night, went home, woke up around three in the morning. And I was just vexed by how I should have, what I should have said. And what I should have said is, we don't just find people. We have really smart people in this industry and they see themselves as professionals and I see them as professionals too. Uh, it's how we train the expectations that we hold ourselves to and our staff to. It's what we say we are and how we mind the gap between culture. it's culture. It's what we say we are and minding the gap between what we say we are and what we are. Mm. Um, you know, and I, that's I, huge. It I, is huge. People think they, they stop at writing it down and they forget that you actually have to live what you write down every day. And every day. Cu- culture isn't what you say you are. It's what you do. It's the reality of it. It's- and, and leadership too, you know, at, as an owner of a business, I am in by default, I am the leader for this business. And, um, this isn't a cult, right? Businesses are, some of them, I guess, get cult-like status, but restaurants are not like that. These are small businesses with very complicated ecosystem and ethosystem. And What's I re- the difference between an ecosystem and an ethosystem? Well, ecosystem is, you know, how it works financially, yep. how it works, all that stuff, the, the operational aspects of it. The ethosystems are the values mm-hmm. that are imbued in every aspect of the business. So back, you said you, it's not enough just to have these things. You have to communicate them regularly. You have to openly have to- communicate so- them to make sure that people who are, who are with you customers and staff. And I also include our vendors too. Mm -hmm. Everyone. Everyone. I'm like, this is what I'm trying to achieve. I am trying to build this. And if you aren't a fit for this view of the world, it's okay. Go work at another restaurant that expects less of you. So what I want to know is once you come to this realization that you have to constantly be echoing these things, communicating these things, how did you do that? How did you communicate? Where did you communicate? When did you communicate? What did that, how can we recreate the level of communication that you had then? What does that look like? I sat down that night and I created my first draft of what I called Martha's book of rules. Mm. And the Book of Rules is a living document in our system. Uh, Every person is trained to it. We hold people accountable by it. There are 10 rules. The first rule is something that I think is critically important for all businesses. And that is the needs of the business come first. Mm. And there are remarkable ways to interpret that. And it is not as simple as it sounds. The needs of the business come first. A lot of people would think that means that the need for profitability is the number one thing we look at. What we also have come to interpret that rule is the needs of the business are to be empathetic, 
leaders of our teams. So it goes back, the needs of the business are meet these core values. Meet these core values and to give, you know, the idea, most businesses, I believe, especially over the last 15 years, have really tried to engage their employees. You hear about that a lot. You need engaged employees to do the work. I decided, I don't know, 15 years ago that engaging employees was efficient. I mean, people should know what their jobs are. They should have the resources available to perform their jobs. They should be trained. They should be held accountable, all that. But the bottom line is that engaged employees helps the organization. It does not necessarily help the employee. And a long time ago, I determined that it was healthier for me to have engaged employees who whose lives were enriched by being part of my company. Yes. And that's really, and that's one of the big realizations I made through this podcast too, is your business isn't about creating opportunity for you. It's about creating opportunity for other people. And when you create opportunity for other people, you happen to be a benefactor of that as well. Not just them, but you, it creates a ripple effect of, of benefits for everyone associated with that. Cause they, they, if, if they grow and they're working with your organization, you grow as a, a byproduct of that as well. Absolutely. And again, that always goes back to the bottom line too. It, if, when you create healthy environments, give people not just respect, but opportunities for a career path that they want um, and a career path that meets their own personal goals. Cause yes. everybody to act like my goals are the only ones that matter. So I think this is like the evolution of, we use the analogy of the, the infant, right? Exactly. Growing. Um, this is when you, they went to school. Like, this is when you decide what your major is in college. Yeah. Like, so, so, um, taking a step back, I, I the idea of how you're communicating your vision, your mission, your values, and it's not enough just to have these, but you got to communicate them. You wrote your book of rules where you put down all of your, what, is, that, we, is that where your mission statement, what, what lived in the book of rules without getting into all the little details of like, just like the, what were like the, the headliners? What were the, our book of rules it are literally, the chapters. Is, are, there, there are 10 rules and the book of rules is our structure our, let me see if I can say this better. It is our protocol. It's not, it's not a task oriented okay. book at all. It is a high level. These are the values of the company. These are our value guard. So those are your core values, core values. And when do you, com- so, you so you write it down. I wrote it down but in, when at, do you communicate it? How often do you communi- we communicate? We communicate it. On I can't talk a, this morning. I'm like still like, If I sound like super mumbling, I apologize. Well, I always think that's my thing. So, (laughs) okay. How do you communicate it? It is communicated from the minute somebody walks into our establishment as an employee. Um, We train to it. We hold people accountable to it. We hold ourselves accountable to it. It's truly our value statement. It talks about the sacredness of our spaces. It talks about the necessity to treat resources with respect. You know, all the stuff we've been talking about, it's been codified. But here's the thing. I realized at basically um, location number three that it wasn't good enough for me to have all this stuff in my head that we needed to really make sure that everyone from 
not just the executive level, the t- I didn't even have executive levels back then, but you know, not it wasn't good enough for me to have this information. I think one of the things that cripples most businesses is information information silos. And you know, we talk about it in terms today of being transparent. Well, I don't know how you define transparency. I always like to know when people throw out kind of cliched words, how they're defining those cliched words. I think transparency inside Parashu is defined by the sharing of information. Yeah. So that's open book management. That That's the, the great love, game of... Yeah. yeah great ahead. game of business. Yep. Yep. Bo, Bur- Bo Burlingham yeah. or Jack Stack? Uh, or Jack Stack? Bo wrote uh, one of my... One of a book that I still recommend to small giants. Yeah. <laughs> it really changed the way I looked at my business. I realized I was a small giant, yeah. but I was not that. That was a really pivotal moment for me um, intellectually. Rem- yeah. It's still relevant to everybody. Yeah, and there's something that like it's weird. Like you start with a like, culture is omnipresent. It's everywhere. Whether you think you have it. Just because you didn't write it down doesn't mean you don't have a culture. You do have a culture. There's cultures everywhere. It's 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 omnipresent. Um, and you're, I think, as you scale, which is what what they talk about with um, uh, small giants. Like, there's certain things you can say you're who you are, but as you scale, like you, there you can't change the fact that some things are going to change about you because you literally have to do business differently to scale. Like you have to fo- you have to lean more on systems, processes, and procedures to scale. You just have to. So there's a almost like a, like a pendulum that when you scale, like you pull away from the human element and you rely more on the systems and process to be able to to keep such a big lumbering beast moving. Yeah. That there's almost you sacrifice something, but the small and normally giants, you know what gets sacrificed the. The human core values, the human relationships, yeah. the quality of the initial product. Exactly. And what the small giants have realized is that, listen, there's a there's a sweet spot. Mm-hmm. There's a sweet spot of profitability and scale, and I still have human connectivity and relationships. And I put that human element above the the autom- the automated autonomous or I don't know the automated element. Yeah. Is that is that but is that, also I look at it I look at scalability even differently mm-hmm. when you talk about scalability that that's something i think that people in restaurant world um are too eager to scale quickly mm. i personally i mean i have 14 restaurants soon to be 17 i've been in business for 33 years that is considered painfully slow growth for any investment firm venture equity people I, which, I don't have, off, right? which I don't have, which I don't have, because they expect along with the late stage capitalism and all that kind of stuff that we talked about a little bit ago, people want rapid growth. Yeah. And I believe that rapid growth is extremely dangerous to the value system culture yeah. and the culture. Yeah. And if you really prioritize culture over profitability, you cannot spit out restaurants like it's you know a bb gun no um why what why why is that the case you think what what is it about growing fastly that hurts people well i i don't know if you've ever worked in restaurants that have are going through extreme growth cycles um it's they are complicated restaurants are complicated you know they're partially a sports team 
partially ballet, uh, people from all, with all different skill sets, all different backgrounds, true mirrors of society, all that stuff in working with consumer in a consumer ex, uh, environment where people we've talked about this people want things at a certain price point and are unwilling to pay for certain things i think every time we build something new we are also changing a little bit about how we build something new and it takes a while to reach equilibrium and if you're building so quickly I don't know. I don't know how you can do it without derailing something. Yeah. Well, you 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 know you have deadlines. You know you got to open. You got to put butts in seats, and sometimes you put the wrong pe- butts in those seats for the yeah. sake of scaling. Right. You know, I always think: Are you a music guy? Do you like music? I love listening to music. I'm my pop culture as far as the details of bands and like re- recollecting titles and things like that. That's not my strong suit. But go well, ahead. Well, I I do love music, uh, and I think about some of the most impressive albums, so to speak, were our bands or individual performers' first work. And then what happens is they get tremendous, they have success with that first album, and then there is remarkable pressure in the marketplace to do another album, put out another album, get it out quickly, make more money, make more money, make more money. The second album is almost not as good. Never. Never. Yeah. I mean, you tell me, uh, the Beatles maybe, yeah. the Rolling Stones, they mastered it, but there are a lot of examples of people who can never quite, you know, it, bring that magic back. So, and I think there's similarities in the restaurant world. Had a great conversation with Chris Schultz. Uh, Chris Schultz started um, with Starbucks, and then he went from there to Mod Pizza, helped Mod Pizza scale, and now he's with Voodoo Donut. Um and we did a workshop on how do you scale culture and what he talked about what the focus of that conversation was he said you need culture carriers you can't just open a restaurant with a yeah. with a new team of people and expect them to understand what the essence is you got to take implants you got to take people that started it and they that is human you have to put that human that they are almost like a virus they're carrying that culture and that people they will set the tone they will set the expectation you need those culture carriers so you can only grow your business as fast as you can grow your people and i think that's what happens is two things determine growth cash flow and people you need both if you get somebody to give you ten thousand dollars you can go out and build all the assets the physical parts of the business but unless you have those people in that business to carry the culture, you're not going to be successful. There have been very few examples in the restaurant world of restaurants, in my mind, that have rapidly expanded. You, and most of the expansion happens. This also, I think, is a problem in our industry, is the expansion happens with other people's money. Mm. I find that when people use other people's money, they lose respect for there's disdain of resources and they lose respect. Also, when you're using other people's money, somehow I think you lose creativity and innovation as well. And- so totally. When when you are forced, when you only have X, like say yeah. $100,000 for the next year to like execute whatever project, um, you're going to go, how am I going to do that? How, this is like when you ask yourself, how can I get creative to make it happen versus, oh, like 
you give me a million dollars, well, I'll just go out and burn that a million that million dollars. I won't get creative. I won't get you know scrappy. Uh, absolutely, it turns on that frontal lobe. It, mm-hmm. it kicks that frontal lobe into hype. Like you figure it out. There's always a way. I do think that we at Parashu have been. Uh, it's the one thing I have not been able to shake is starter mentality, start up yeah. mentality. Let's get back to this this and, this, uh, this analogy you use with the, the children. I, the, the, I think I'm always a mother, you know. Yeah. So my kids are older. They're established. They're doing their own stuff. They live in other cities. They have their own lives. I still worry about them. Mm. And I still think of them as those kids, you mm-hmm. know, my babies. I, in a, in a sense, I believe that to be the case when I open a restaurant, regardless of the concept or where or the location, I still really have a very startup mentality. It's almost like it's post-trauma or something. You know, but it it's so scary. And I believe a lot of it is because we do have these people, the culture carriers that you're talking yeah. about. We have those people. And I feel not just indebted to them, but I owe them. I owe them something. So I don't take I, – I try very, very, very strongly to um, never take advantage of those carriers, right? And also, I'm the one who pays back every every note. I have to make sense of the money. And we keep on going back to this. Restaurants are businesses. Yeah. Yeah. No. The, that, the fact that people act like they're high art and that the people in them are geniuses, I'm like, back down on that. You know, I'm happy you're saying this because in my travels, I, I, for a while, like I would really just look to media outlets to find the people I was looking to make an example of. I'd look to things like James Beard Award winners, food and wine. Um, I, I'm going to encourage us to go deeper. So I want a James Beard Award. I, I really do. Let I, me, I, let I, me finish this change. Okay, of, go this, ahead. This train of thought because I think you'll get on board with what I'm trying to say. I used to follow, I, these were the, the, the outlets I would go to, to, to find people to make an example of. And what I found after interviewing almost a thousand people in who are considered to be the most successful people, the most successful people are scraping and barely hanging on because we, we glorify the, the creative element of the business, which is really important. We need that, but we're constantly trying to outdo each other in creativity and we're not being fiscally responsible. And that's a lot of the reason I'm sorry. That's a lot of the reason why we're in, in trouble after post pandemic. It's not because of the freaking pandemic. It's because of our value, like where we're putting the focus on trying to wow and impress people. And we're, we're creating these huge lumbering beasts of businesses that have outrageous labor expenses because we're more interested in, in our ego and getting the trophy and getting the award to drive traffic to our business. Because unless we get that fucking award, we can't sustain our business because that's what's it's unsustainable. And we're I, all achieving. We're all going for the same thing and there's not enough awards to go around. Well, I am an anti list person. Yeah. I so, do not buy into, you know, ever when you go to, look, I'm, I'm old school. Let me just put this in perspective. I took myself to Paris when I was 17, back in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, I went there. And that was before social media, before lists, before all this stuff. I had to actually do research, and I actually had to have feet on the ground and go and experience things yeah. to 
have an understanding. It is the world is very different today, mm. but this list mentality, I think, is remarkably dangerous. Are, are you telling me? Wait, real quick. I'm going to encourage you to. I think this is important. I think this is a big moment of our interview. When we were when I brought up the awards, the the James Beard, the the food and wine. Mar- Martha put two middle fingers up. I'm sorry. And it's not because I <laughs> Does, don't want one. I covet. <laughs> I, if I could get a James Bear, I've been nominated six times. Yeah. If I could get an award, I would just like die. But the reason I would die is because of the financial. Ad- it would be an additive to my financial bottom line. and But if I think for a minute that my sole purpose in life is to get a James Beard Award. I That's not my sole purpose of no, my business. And, but that's the thing is people are getting, not everybody, but there's a good chunk of people who just have such admiration for these restaurants that get these awards and that's what like that drives them and motivates them to get involved in the industry and that's what they're after. They're after these awards and they don't think that they've made it until they've gotten a James Beard Award. How many restaurants are we? We said it earlier. There's almost seven hundred thousand restaurants. Um, there's only what fifty awards that go out, maybe. And you're or, telling me that the, there's probably that, more than that, but you know, any list of the restaurants to go to in New York or the you know Indianapolis, the top ten restaurants. <laughs> do you, I mean that's you, so insulting? Here's one way to look at it. Like, do you Tell know how many me. awards would get, or how many restaurants would get awards that if they existed twenty years ago? You know what I'm saying? Like, there's so many restaurants operating at a high level today that would have gotten awards if they came around 10, 20 years sooner. But now the it's so much more competitive because there's like the food's been elevated across the board. It's like, yeah. how can you tell me that this is the best restaurant in the Northeast or the Southwest or in the Midwest? Well, that one restaurant out of realistically hundreds of restaurants that are doing just as good as that restaurant. How are you going to pick one? And also, most of those restaurant lists talk about only the plate and i i still maintain what i said at the beginning of our conversation restaurants are much more than mm-hmm. the plate yeah the plate is critical we're in the food business that's the low hanging fruit yeah. right but everything else should matter too yeah and a lot of the restaurants that have been elevated in reputation because of these lists awards whatever you call them are restaurants that and you know this, are restaurants that have perpetuated extraordinarily toxic practices. And for them to get the 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 award, the carrot, is I think really wrong. Yeah. And that's exactly why I've I've been putting more emphasis on who do you respect and admire in the industry. I put the priority on word of mouth of people in the industry who recognize what other people are doing who need to be made an example of. I'm really trying to, I, I don't even pay attention to publicists anymore. I really don't either because do they're I. destroying the fucking industry. Pardon mm-hmm. my language. And we need to take our industry back. And I feel like this has been such an overarching high level conversation. Like I usually like to, to drill down into the nitty gritty and to get the details, but the, there's tons of value in today's conversation about what needs to change in our industry. And that collectively, can we just say fuck the awards? Like stop, holding yourself to those standards or those expectations because that's not what it's about. And I think that they're give those awards, but for a restaurant to think that that's the only thing that validates Mm -hmm. them is a hundred percent erroneous. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, Okay. Let's go back to this analogy of raising a child, right? So the first thing you realize 
core values. We need to share our core values. Um, what happened when you went from one restaurant to two restaurants? What were the things that you started doing differently? Because you had to be in two places now. Yeah. One to two was, for me, the yeah. most difficult in my scaling journey. Why? Because of exactly what you just said. I had to be in two places. And, and raise a child. Or it, in two other, an infant in two three, other children. Yeah, three, three kids. Yeah. yeah. Um, but them aside, those people aside, just talking about the business specifically, um, I restaurant number one allowed me to do what I was doing creatively. Didn't know I was creating culture, by the way, just thought I was dealing with the food in my neighborhood, um, building a clientele and a reputation. And it really was about the food, but I did not have the systems in place to multiply my work. So what did you learn about systems? That they are critically important. And I'll tell you uh, what I've really learned is that in a restaurant, this is going to sound counterintuitive, but creativity is the enemy. When you have multiple locations of one brand, you cannot have everyone in the ecosystem working for those locations being their own creative geniuses. Why? Because it consistency mm. of product, consistency of service, consistency of everything is what matters Why? at the end of the day. Uh, because that's what people expect as they go from restaurant to restaurant. Mm. So as you scale, if you do not have the right systems and procedures in place, you're going to have basically two versions of the Wild West. And you just, uh, that to me is adds chaos. Yeah. And restaurants are chaotic enough. That's one of the reasons why I love restaurants because I thrive in chaos. Like that's why I think I love the interview process. I don't really prep that much. It's improv. You know, like, and that's, a, there's a lot of improv in the restaurant industry, especially, especially full service because you're, you know, on the floor and you know, you're basically doing improv with the guest, right? But I really believe that I, I, there was a moment in time when I had three locations that. When was that? When did you go from one to two and two? Are to you three? asking me years? I'm really bad about that. Um, what if, I year five approximations. Year five, I opened up the second location and almost immediately opened up the third location, and those were very opportunistic. Yeah. Uh, you know, I also realized. I mean, this was a long time ago. This was in the early '90s. I realized that in order to truly make profits that could change the lives of the people in my company, could change my life, could allow me to grow my business, you have to be at a certain level of profitability. And unfortunately, a single restaurant doesn't get you there. And that's part of the struggle. Yeah. That's part of the struggle is, and everyone gets that. Just to have one restaurant, you might do okay, but you're never going to do really well. So you started with core values, culture, vision, all these things, communicating. Low-hanging fruit. Yeah. You realize that in order to scale, you needed to recreate yourself in systems and processes and remove. You you went from a a person-dependent operation to a system-dependent operation. And a team-dependent. And you also talked about the importance of building a team around you. When did that, was that after building the systems or before building the systems? No, I I stumbled into all of this. I, this was, it's not like I had a book that I read and I was like, oh, this is how 
you do it, um, especially back then. School no one knocks. cared. Yeah. Yes. And I just realized that in order to grow my business, I understood that I had to become more systematized and that I, I literally had to communicate internally much different than I was communicating. But what I really realized is that I didn't have all the answers. Mm. And, you know, I think the most effective founders, business leaders, whatever, entrepreneurs are ones that understand that they are not the smartest person in the world. Yeah. Even if they've had success, that does not necessarily mean it's because they're smart. Yeah. That was one of the biggest realizations I've made in my, my nine year journey to where I am today with the podcast. Five years in, I was like, I need to start telling people some definitive answers. I need to start giving people what I've learned, what I know to be true. And the more I try to distill what I knew to be true, the more I realized that there, there is no one way. There is no right answer. There's just a bunch of different possibilities depending on what you, your strengths are. It's, it's dynamic. It's constantly changing. And usually there is no right. there's too much information. The thing I know for certain is that I don't know everything. The more I learn, the more I realize I don't know anything. And I realized that in order for my company to grow the way at some point, year 10 or so, I was like, oh, I'm going to grow this company. Mm. Uh, In order for me to grow, I had to attract talent. And by talent, I don't mean bodies. I mean, people that were not just values aligned, but people that had an expertise area that filled some of my weaknesses yeah. that complemented yeah. my what I was doing. I'm great at envisioning things. Mm. I am great at establishing culture. I am great at talking about mission and narrowing the gap between, as I said before, what we say we are and what we are. I am very good in those areas, but I need people who are better than me in other areas. So we have a full on leadership team um, that I am extraordinarily, I bow down to them. We, uh, yesterday, uh, sorry, Wednesday of this week, we had a quarterly leadership meeting where we are, we, we do this, we zoom out. This is a big zoom out conversation you and I are having today. And I think learning to step back and zoom out is one of the most important things you can do in your personal life and in your business life to make sure that what you're doing out there, what your daily tasks are, whatever it is your work is, is aligned with the larger picture of what you're trying to accomplish. We do these Zoom out meetings with tremendous uh, frequency um, because, again, we've got a large team. We have a lot of people. We have to make sure that these messages and ideas and the way we talk about things, the language that we use are fully integrated in everything that we do in the company. We also um, are starting, uh, this is something we do periodically, we have a resiliency team and we talk in terms of 10-year resiliency uh, programming. Um, I am very fortunate one of the members of my team is um, has her master's in rest- in food system sustainability, and you mentioned slow before she happened to get it from the uh, her master's from the University of Gastronomic Science, which is was founded by the person who founded slow food 
are you familiar I've with heard Slow of them. Food? Yeah. yeah, it's kind of an organization that has lost some of its um, momentum. Yeah, mainly because the ideas of slow food have been usurped, right? Yeah, and, they, and they, they've lived their mission. It's, they, it's, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. She also is earning a second graduate degree um, in resiliency with the food and specific to the food systems. So this is absolutely within her area of expertise, sustainability and sustainability. The way we define it is being a resilient organization, Mm -hmm. an organization that can identify its potential vulnerabilities and respond to them before they happen. Okay. What were the biggest potential vulnerabilities you've identified and how have you responded to them? Well, let's the the, overtime, the overtime um, competition always, right? Uh, the ability to attract talent has it's everyone's vulnerability now, but it's something that we've been tremendously aware of since basically day one. Um, vulnerabilities, things that we have no control over, pandemics, mm. you know, horrible weather cycles, yeah. um, impacting. How about inflation? Those yeah. are all vulnerabilities that in order for my company to maintain its financial sustainability, right? In order for us to be long lasting, we have to understand how whatever future vulnerabilities are coming our way that we are prepared to address them. Yeah. Um, so much to talk about. So so the first three restaurants you're talking about, you, we made it to the third restaurant. Were these all the same restaurant or were you developing all the same restaurant? Okay. So I think another thing that you did with that, I think is really smart is you also created a commissary around the third restaurant. Yeah. What? And the reason I did the commissary at the time I had three restaurants is that it, the third restaurant was when it became abundantly clear to me that having three different chefs or cooking teams create, even if with a firm recipe, they were always going to tweak it. Unfortunately, someone would always try to take a shortcut. Skill Some, set would, would be different. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I believe in consistency of product. I'm a total control freak. But I believe that a customer should go to a cafe parachu if they went to location A one day and location B the next day, their experience should be on the same level so a big part of that not only is it improving consistency but you're also probably cutting back on labor i'm assuming cutting back on labor and also in terms of scaling i don't need to reinvent these huge kitchens in every location because we have a huge kitchen that is making our breads and our desserts our salad dressings our soups which leaves footprint for more butts and seats absolutely yeah yeah These, these little things um one thing I am curious about, because when I get to talk to somebody who's had a career over such a, a long period of time, 33 years now, right? Um, your business has probably evolved a lot. Talking, oh, yeah. Talking about just finding efficiencies. Uh, you're, you, it looks like you've been searching for efficiencies for a long time. You did it before the advent of technology, you yeah. know, and how have you had, how have you been forced to evolve over time now with 14 locations in total? Well, I, I, I'm going, you know, when I was a prosecutor, I used to always say that you have to answer questions that, that you have to answer the question that wasn't asked. So <laughs> I'm going to 
give you an answer that is kind of tangential to what you asked. We realized sometime around 2018 that we needed to be a higher tech company. Where were you? Paint the picture of where you were prior to 2018. Well, we didn't. We bought into the the line, the myth, the narrative that food was art, and therefore technology. Uh, you couldn't you couldn't apply technology to it without losing some of the art. And sometime around 2018, I had a, an epiphany, and I don't know why. I just remember at some point going, man, we are just missing the boat here. Technology not only creates greater efficiency, it gives us data in real time. And that data can really help us not create waste in a variety of ways. And 2019, we were exploring these ideas. Then 2020 happened. And we were literally, it was like a cream pie that was thrown on our face because we had not moved quickly enough to embrace tech. So is this around the time Kristen Barnett comes into the scene? It sure is. Yeah. So yeah. how did Kristen Barnett help you? What, why did you bring Kristen on? Who? So Well, again, it goes back to I knew that we had weaknesses on our own team. Yeah. A little context for the listeners. Please. Kristen Barnett, recent guest on the show, uh, was the chief operating officer, I believe, for Zool, uh, which was a ghost kitchen company. And prior she, to that, she, she was with... Uh, dig in dig as in. their uh, strategic development person. Yes, uh, specifically logistics behind how the the commissary. So, you know, there's a lot of similarities here. I'm starting to see that um, she and, called you out, which is why I'm here. We literally just drove across the country, and when I was like, we need to make a stop for one interview because I don't know when I'm going to be in Indianapolis next. So, like, let's, while we're driving across the country, like a little detour, I want to get this interview. So, um, she called you out because she worked with you. So that's why we're talking about Kristen Barnett right now. So how did, how did she help you out? Well, Kristen and I first met through a series of uh, women in food conferences, and I was so impressed with her oh, high function. You talk about smart, high functioning She's intelligence, ridiculous, yeah. right? And, uh, you know, besides her education and hotel and restaurant management through Cornell, going from uh, an economic, she worked at Bain or one of those organizations, and then went to the food side, went over to Diggin and then to Zool. She understood technology and the need for technological platforms to be embedded in the restaurant world and what the value it would bring to us. And she was in between gigs, and I saw her at a conference, and I said, hey, I, I need help in this regard. We are not tech savvy. We need to become tech savvy. I don't have the person on the team in this moment who can dive into it. Can you help? And she signed on as a short-term consultant and really, 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 there was so much value in that. And we still, to this day, she, as you know, has launched her own ghost kitchen. and Hungry House. Hungry House, which is, again, And I I think that there is no value of just doing the same thing, but doing it, uh, you know, doing the same thing. There's no reason for someone 
Like how many coffee shops do we need in the world? How many restaurants do we need? Unless you're doing things differently. Hungry House really is a distinguished ghost kitchen. Um, But her knowledge about tech is remarkable. And she really put us on a pathway where we now have really embraced tech in our system. Yeah. If you guys did not catch that episode, Kristen Barnett was episode 910. Head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 910. Really great episode. What were the specific things that she did? If you're reflecting back, like she, you said that she helped you implement technology, but she like helped get us, granular. Yeah, I'm going to get really granular. She took our existing data and interpreted it in ways that helped us not create waste. Okay. And that to me is the best thing that technology can bring to a restaurant. Since then, we have, uh, we have, installed food and inventory management programs that work in real time. Can you share which programs those we are? Use, we use a platform called um, Foodager, yeah. um, which is... Foodager, well- Bevager, which I think is foodable now. No, is that right? I don't know. We, I know what is Foodager. Craftable. Is that it? I think so. I think yeah. they, they rebranded to craft, Craftable. She also introduced us to Bento Box, um, and what's Bento Box? Bento Box is a website develop a web developer specific to the restaurant industry that also has the ability to integrate several uh, other tech platforms, and it allows us to not just improve our website, but also, I mean, the content of which we created, but they they installed or I don't know what the right word is. Implemented, um, I guess. Launched. They uh, launched, yeah. yeah. But also the our ability to connect with engage with our customer and our staff is through some of their technology. So just this, you know, that there there are tons of tech platforms out there. They all promise to do the same thing basically. Create efficiencies, give you data um, connect with customers, connect with staff. They all do that. So they that, all say that, yeah. but there are very few that understand restaurants. Yes. And these two, Foodager and Bento Box, both, in fact, yesterday I had a meeting, a virtual meeting with our one of our Bento Box. Uh, they just recently sold, didn't they? Yeah, they did, but the owner is still involved in the company. Yeah, but past guest on the show, past per- sponsor of the show, by the way. Too. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah, that. I always try to. I, I never, you know, I'm I'm letting. I try to be transparent, you know. And yeah, I the love reason that. The, the companies I get to sponsor the show are companies that are referred to me organically. I'm well, really trying to. I love that the at Bento Box. Um, what impressed us was that 80 percent of their people who work there have worked in restaurants. So they understand restaurants. Yeah. Um, and Kristen, what, what's her last name? The owner, do you know her, her, her name? Can't she remember. was a past guest in the show as well. Um, really cool stuff going on there. Um, a little curious about Foodager and Bevager, I think, which, which I think is craftable today. Um, I'm going to try to fact check that. How specifically has had that helped you? Like where, what, what was the most value you got out of these tools? It allows us, look, they're very, we, we talk a lot about not creating waste as opposed to dealing with the waste that is created. I think there are tremendous nuggets in that alone. If you don't create waste, you don't have to figure out 
a way to get rid of the waste and you save money on the front end and on the back end. Foodager specifically allows us to monitor our ingredient cost and all of our, our cost of goods in real time, which allows us, which gives us greater information and allows us to have greater control over our cost of goods. Mm. So it's not about the money coming in, it's more about the money going out. A hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, really trying to increase those margins. You know, rest, uh, restaurants don't have, at least my restaurant does not have the flexibility and the luxury of like a grocery store that changes their pricing on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, we don't do that. I mean, in a real world, airlines, they do that, right? Uh, yeah. Uber, they do that with surge pricing. We can't do that. We, we print menus, even if you're using QR codes, I know of no restaurant, maybe they exist, I just don't know, that change their menu pricing on a daily basis, depending on where their commodity market lands. So what's really interesting right now, and I get the, if, if you're around 15, 20 years ago, to change your menu was an endeavor, you know? Oh my God. You get to print out the cost of printing on all that, that expensive paper. Uh, you just have to the, design it. You have to do graphics. It was a, there's a lot of resistance. I think one really huge thing that we haven't really appreciated in the modern restaurant world is that it's very like we, we can go into, it's all centralized. You can go and it's all digitized. So in, weekly inventory, right? Like dynamic costing, go in, change it weekly. Why not? It's so much easier today because everything is pushed digitally. Some people still rely on the printed menus. I get that. But more and more people are willing to use a QR code to get a menu. And when you think about the operational efficiencies, plus it's it's more sustainable. You know, we don't need to be using paper. We don't need to be increasing our cost of goods if we don't need to. The The future consumer is literally going to be attached to their phone. You know, it's well, going to be an appendage was, of us. That was something else that we really embraced along with saying we need to be more tech savvy. Yeah. We need to embrace. We, we understood 2020 forced us to understand this at the same time that we were coming to the conclusion on our, uh, on our own. We understood that we needed to meet customers where they wanted to be met. It was no longer the, the assumption that restaurants were physical places that people went to to sit down and have a meal. That no longer defined what a restaurant was. What? Eating out is not necessarily people driving to a restaurant, parking their car, walking into a restaurant, sitting down, looking at a menu and ordering food. At, and you know that. Yeah. what's happened in the virtual world. Um, but even just how people supported us and supported restaurants during the lockdowns was all, mostly a virtual experience. Yeah. And if you didn't have that technology, you were so behind. Yeah. Um, anything we haven't discussed as far as your evolution or your restaurant's evolution, how you've changed, how you've operated, how you evolved, any advice you wish you could give yourself then that you know now? You know, the biggest piece of advice I would give myself, and on reflection, looking back, something I wish I had done earlier, is all the things that we do to make sure that our internal culture is in line with what we say we are, and that our internal culture is healthy. I wish we had talked about it more openly more assertively and more audaciously from day one. I think that 
it would not only have meant a lot to the people who work in my company who are contributing so much, but I think it would also help consumers understand what we do and how we're distinguished. I don't think we patted ourselves on the back properly for being a game changer in the cultural space. So paint that picture of what that looks like today, how you're, you're communicating this culture, how you're paying it for, how, how, what does that look like? How can we emulate what you're doing so well? Well, one of the, we've got a couple programs internally that I am like extremely not just proud about, but bullish on that have made the real difference. We realized uh, even prior to 2020 that one of the things that lacks in the restaurant industry is the ability for people to see a leadership or opportunity pipeline for themselves. And we determined that, you know, we know how expensive it is for turnover. We put a ton into hiring and training and expectation setting and holding people accountable, holding ourselves accountable. And we also know that there are certain inflection points where people leave the company. And having this that having this technology, by the way, was really helpful in us understanding what those inflection points were. We, we know that the greatest amount of turnover we have are people who leave us before their 90 days expired, their first 90 days expired. Those are usually people who are not good cultural work fits. We get that. The, and those don't bother us. They're expensive, but we have come to accept that. Yeah. That if someone is a bad fit, they're better off leaving in 90 days than staying. What bothers us is we know at three years and at five years, those are inflection points where people consider leaving restaurants, our restaurants or any restaurants that they are in. And those are people who have shown that they are hardworking, that they are loyal, that they understand and live the values of the company. I don't want to lose those people. Yeah. I want to know. So again, so why do you think they leave? Well, most of them, we have several, we have mined a lot of data, especially since 2020, to understand why they leave. And they leave for three primary reasons. They leave because they want, they are moving out of the city or out of state. That's our number one reason we lose people. We shockingly do not lose people because of money. Everyone thinks that people jump fence because of a dollar more an hour or whatever the financial opportunities. That's not what our data shows us. People leave because they move. They leave because they leave the industry or they leave us because they don't see an opportunity yes. for their future. Yes. So and what that's you, something we can control. So how are you controlling it? We have a leadership uh, pipeline opportunities. We have several and we tell people it's, we want you to stay in the company. Tell us what you need. And I'm not exaggerating this at all. 98% of the people, when they tell us what they want and what they need, they do not talk about finances. They are talking about their own personal goals to better their life. Yes. And what, so I'll give you several examples. We have people who have, the, we're sitting in the office of the Pottershoe Foundation. We're sitting in the executive director's office. He started out as a host at one of my cafes. 
got into our management training after six months of being a host, and then almost immediately came to me, this was seven years ago, and said, I think, Martha, I'm better suited to work in the foundation than I am in the restaurants. He is now the executive director of the Potashu Foundation. Is that Nick? No, his name is Matthew. Oh, is that who just walked me in? Is that somebody uh, else? That was Clark. Oh, Clark. Clark. Sorry. Yeah. Got it. Um, Sorry, Clark. No, I, uh, <laughs> Matthew is not here today. Oh, He's it, out in it. the field working. But he, a perfect example, he's now a Bloomberg scholar. Wow. Getting a master's in public health at uh, Johns Hopkins. Uh, so my whole point being, we have taken people not only where we think their strengths are, but where they think their strengths are and have given them opportunities. The right seat in the bus. Yeah. And beyond saying, you know, there's this hierarchy you have to follow. You're a busser, you're a host, you go from host to server, server to assistant manager, whatever. We don't buy into that. Um, And we have so many examples of the one I just gave you. We have extraordinary amount of examples we started something three years ago called, uh, four years ago, called Potashu University, Potashu, and it is a leadership development program. It lasts a year. It follows the school year. It meets once a week, not once a month. It meets once a week, and it is an intensive on how you can develop your, how you can develop your life personally and professionally and really explore your abilities to lead. Yeah. Um, and that program, now this coming year, we have 25 attendees to the program. Yeah. So great episode I recorded with Nick Cirillo from Nick's Pizza on how to create tangible framing of or tangible framing for growth in your business, um, which gets into what you're talking about. People need to know how they're going to be able to grow with you. Mm-hmm. And, and this also goes back to scale. You scale when you have created all those those paths of growth and they're all filled and you have somebody waiting in line and then maybe an even a, th- a third person in line for each one of those verticals. And that's when you say, if we don't open another location, these people are going to go someplace else. We'll lose them. Exactly. Yeah. And those are your culture carriers. A hundred percent. And that's what determines your growth. So you have to show people, like here are the different verticals within our organization. The, like Chart your own path. And if you want to end up in, in this vertical over here, here's exactly how you get here. Here's step one, here's step two, here's step three, and let's go. And with each movement, it opens up an opportunity for somebody else. And also what we say very loudly is you don't have this idea that you have to always change, always be growing, always be scaling just for growth's sake. I'm like, if you are really fulfilled and happy doing what you're doing, I've had, a, I have one particular dishwasher who's been with us for 28 years. Now, is a dishwasher really a dishwasher? No, to me, they're logistical geniuses. Um, you know, efficiencies. Efficiencies. You know, yeah. They, my that uh, Samuel is his name. He knows more about waste than anybody in my company. He can give me an idea at the end of the day of what the the bottom line when how our you know how what waste we created. He sees it going into the trash containers. He gets it. Yeah. Um. And he also has remarkable pride of that position, as do I. 
So I also don't believe that it is right to treat any position as if it is an insignificant cog in our wheel. Mm. I love this. I've really loved today's conversation. Would you believe we've been talking for two hours and 20 no. minutes? It goes by so fast. No. I love what I do. Like when time flies, like it flies when I'm having these recordings, I, I feel like I, I know I'm on the right path because well, it's so much fun. I really have enjoyed this remarkably. And I'll tell you what distinguishes what you do. Cause I do podcasts. So Please. many people stick to a script mm. and they don't have conversations. They just have bullet points they want to address. Mm-hmm. And I really feel as if we've gotten to know each other through this conversation. That's so much fun. Is it? Thank you very much. That's a great compliment. Thank you so much. Um, we're not done yet. We still oh. have a speed round. Oh my God. So we're going to take one more quick break with thank our sponsors <laughs> and we'll be right back. It's no secret that restaurants have been hit hard over the past few years, which means restaurant owners and staff have been working harder than ever. Trying to meet the demands of in-person hospitality can be demanding, which is why I recommend Pop Menu Answering. Pop Menu Answering turns every restaurant phone call into an opportunity. It uses artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions that are tying up your phone lines, like can I make a reservation or where are you located? And over 50% of restaurant guests are happy to have their questions answered by an automated system. With the Pop Menu platform, you can customize answers for your restaurant and you can choose the voice your guests hear and even send follow-up links via text message. Pop Menu Answering picks up your phone 24-7, 365 days a year, allowing you and your team to focus on what matters most. Prevent lost customers and impress your guests with Pop Menu Answering. And for a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off your first month plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get $100 off for your first month and learn more about Pop Menu's full collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially with this labor shortage. You need to rely and trust technology more than ever before. And dialing in your labor management is one of the most positive, dramatic impacts you can make on your business's bottom line. And when it comes to labor management, Seven Shifts is one of the most, if not the most, organically recommended labor management platforms on the show. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communication, tasks, tips, and more all from one place. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system you're already using like toast to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant Unstoppable members get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. 
We're back, and I just realized I forgot to ask you a very strategic question, a question I ask all my guests, uh, which is an opportunity to constantly repeat my mission statement to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. How have you transformed personally? Who is Martha Hoover today versus Martha Hoover in 1989? I think the keen difference between what I started out being and what I've evolved to being is I care much more about other people than I do my own success, other people's success than I do my own. Beautiful. Now let's get into the speed round. Are speed you ready? round. Come on. <laughs> All right. The Are first... we doing shots of vodka first? Uh, hey, if it's on the table. <laughs> <laughs> it isn't, people. <laughs> uh, all right. The first question I have for you is what is your it factor? A habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Delusion. What is your biggest weakness? Delusion. What is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're growing your team? How does this person fit in with the values of the company? What is your biggest challenge today? Oh, this isn't a quick answer. Um, Maintaining relevancy and continuing to operate an organization that is distinguished from the average restaurant. How are you overcoming it? It is a continuous positioning statement. We are becoming ex- extraordinarily adept at communicating what distinguishes us. What is one code of conduct or core value you teach your team? Respect. What is one I'm, side note? I noticed that you put respect. You work that language into your core values. We respect this. We respect this. And I can't remember the list, but I liked that. That was a really cool thing. I wanted to draw attention to that when you were going through it earlier. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? So this is something that's common within the four walls of your restaurants to go above and beyond what's expected from the guests, but not common throughout the industry. Just sheer understanding that people come into our restaurants to get a reprieve on their life. What is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or a restaurant owner? You can't say Danny Meyer sitting at the table. I wouldn't have said that. Okay. <laughs> Not that I don't have respect for Danny Meyers. Um, I right now is, am using the book Imaginable by Jane McGonigal as my new Bible. Mm. Um, what, uh, biggest Jane, lesson from that book? You cannot control the future, but you your actions today impact the future Mm. she is a futurist and i am a pretend futurist i love that sort of thing so i'm gonna have to get into that book it's Um, it's a remarkable read yes thank you what is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough i think they don't talk about the fragility of their businesses um i think they hang on to this model that restaurants are theater and no one is supposed to see you sweat Mm. what is one technology you've recently implemented in your business that's had a huge impact on profitability, communication, efficiency, anything along those lines? I will go back to Foodager. Beautiful. And this is the last question. 
It's a doozy. So get ready for a it. Doozy? A doozy? Okay. Yeah. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for your legacy and for the good of humanity. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? Wow. You know, talking about future thinking, uh, the older I get, the more cognizant I am on my limited runway to make an impact. Um, I believe in some very basic things. Um, I, I'm not a religious person, so this is meant in the most agnostic or atheistic way. Do unto others as you would do yourself. One. I think is one. Uh Second thing, I would want people to remember about me. Is that what you're saying? Or what, what was the question? If you could leave something behind, uh, knowledge, wisdom, three pieces of wisdom for the good of humanity and your legacy, what were those three pieces? I think of another be? one is know thyself. Two. Be honest to yourself. Uh, always speak truth to power. Is, is that three. three? Beautiful. Martha. Thank you so, so much for taking the time to sit with me, to share your story, to share your knowledge, your wisdom, your mentorship. Uh, we wrap up every episode by calling somebody out. Uh, who do you respect and uh, admire in this industry? If you can't think of just one, hit me with multiple. I'm going to hit you with multiples. Yeah. There, you know, my center of universe has been the other remarkably strong and talented, hardworking women in this industry, most of us have been so overlooked. So the, I'm going to go with these people, some of whom I think you know, um, and some maybe not. I have a remarkable amount of respect for Linda Dershang out of Seattle um, and her businesses, Linda's Tavern and King's Tavern have been remarkable cultural centers of Seattle for the last 30 years. Um, I think Camilla Marcus is a remarkable thought leader. And although she does not currently own a restaurant, she has. Um, but she is at the top of the heap in terms of thinking. Sarah Gavigan is a dear friend and colleague of mine. Um, she owns restaurants in Nashville, Tennessee. And we keep up with each other and talk high-level philosophy a lot. Uh, somebody behind the scenes that doesn't get enough recognition is Randy Weinstein, who has organized a women in food conference named FAB in that is held yearly in Charleston. And truly, she has been uh, the nexus for so many women in the food world. I'm going to name one more person. Please. Um, Adrian Lipscomb is one of my, I, I look up to her with remarkable respect, and she inspires me. She is a chef, um, a former restaurant owner, uh, an architect by education. She's completing her doctorate in urban planning, and she created a foundation called 40 Acres and a Mule, um, and 40 Acres and a Mule raises money to return land to black farmers. Um, and again, I talk about the farming history in Indiana, the one state I know anything about farming history in. Um, she's an expert on land use, generational wealth, 
and it's uh, how it has impacted communities of color. All right. And uh, where is she based in Indiana? No, she's based right now in Austin, Texas, where she's a Ph.D. candidate in their urban planning school. I go to Austin often. I go to Nashville often. I have to go back to Washington. It's been too long. Um, So I'm hoping to get these interviews locked in and scheduled for you. And thank you so much, Martha. Again, I just can't say thank you enough. Uh, You make what I do possible. uh, So I can't do what I do without people like you. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. And I almost forgot to give you an opportunity to let us know how to connect. Anyone can email me, Martha at CafePadoshu.com. And uh, go to our website, got all sorts of, I believe in open information systems. So our book of rules, all of our policies, our handbook, uh, a a blog where I uh, enter all my, the speeches that I make, uh, all that stuff is on there. So please go. CafePatterShoe.com, something like that. Awesome. (laughs) We'll have the links in the show notes. Thank you. Uh, Thank you so much. I'll say it again. There is no questioning, Martha. You are unstoppable. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you. Cheers. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Martha Hoover, for joining us and recording a great episode. And if I seemed a little spacey, I apologize uh, during this trip. I don't know if you're aware, but like, man, we drove straight from Bend, Oregon. I was helping a friend uh, travel back from Bend, Oregon to New Hampshire. We left 430 p.m. Eastern time from Bend, drove straight to Indianapolis for this interview. And uh, we had a seven-hour stop in Indianapolis, and we continued on to New Hampshire. We made it into New Hampshire at 7 a.m. Saturday morning. So crazy, crazy journey to get this interview. We're hustling behind the scenes to bring you two episodes a week. And um, just, man, (laughs) it was quite the journey. So we need your support. If you guys have not yet, please head over to YouTube.com slash Restaurant Unstoppable. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're in the process of trying to bring on a full-time videographer to to share what's happening behind the scenes here at Restaurant Stoppable to up our level on the video quality of these interviews. And we need your support. The more subscribers we have, the more we can leverage sponsors to uh, you know support what we're trying to do here to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. You can also support the show by subscribing to this podcast if you have not yet on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and Google Play, all of your audio players. Uh, share this thing with everybody and anyone you know aspiring to be great in the industry. Support our sponsors. We don't let anybody sponsor the show. We really do try to vet people and also use our affiliate links. Whenever there's a tool or service recommended on the show that you're interested in, head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash whatever the episode number is. We'll have links to those tools and services. And all you got to do is click our links. We'd be telling you about these things regardless of whether or not we're earning a commission. And then what else? What else? What else? Come join Restaurant Unstoppable Network. I'm in the process of bringing on a full-time community manager. I want to pivot my attention to 100% on-site interviews and recruiting amazing people to the network. And we're going to have a full-time community manager in the process of making that happen for you guys. Uh, So come join the network, be a part of the conversation, be a part of the transformation of our industry. And before I say goodbye, just special thanks to Jerry Parisi at Sumadre podcast for helping me bring this podcast to you all. That's it for today. Until next time, peace out.